Chapter 5 of Prowling About Panama. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prowling About Panama by George A. Miller. Chapter 5 The Spell of the Jungle. What the desert is to Arizona, and the ice to Alaska, the jungle is to tropical America. He who has never traveled through a tropical jungle on a trusty mule has missed something out of his life. He should go back and begin all over again. The jungle is much maligned and often misinterpreted. The jungle has a place in the agricultural life of the tropics, but it also has a place in the aesthetic and moral life of mankind. Here at last there is room, and the starved and stunted life may relax its struggle and strain and expand under the luxuriance and exuberance of a world where all the forces of life overflow and run riot in a thousand fantastic forms of energy and growth. Like the uncharted vastness of the polar sea and the unbounded shimmering mirage of the wide desert, here at last there is plenty and to spare. When a man has stinted and economized all his life on a New England hillside amid stones and stumps, the jungle takes the load off his soul and sets him free in a universe of new and untested dimensions. The jungle is misunderstood. There are jungles unworthy of the name, but these vast Panamanian hothouses are a different matter. They are not the bottomless morasses of deadly snakes and poisonous vapors. Since men have learned how to live in the tropics, these terrors have largely retreated to the highly colored accounts of tropical travelers who took one look and fled to write a book of timely warning to the uninitiated. These jungles are not the haunts of hidden horrors and poisoned arrows. Ferocious tree dwellers may inhabit the unknown recesses of the upper Amazon, but they do not live in the jungles of Central America and Panama. It takes just three conditions to make a good jungle, and these three are all present in this fascinating country. Moisture, temperature, and soil. Mix them in the right proportions, and you can produce a jungle at the North Pole. But nowhere can the mixture be located except in the tropics. When one remembers the painstaking toil expended on the rocky fields of northern New York, and then turns to a land where the problem is not to encourage but prevent growth, one wonders how it happened that our ancestors blundered into an environment reeking with difficulties when they might have had all this overflow of abundance for the taking. There are several brands of jungle, to be sure, and distinct differences of kind may be located easily. The jungle of the overflowed level riverland is a very different formation from that which climbs over the rolling hills and up the mountain slopes. But everywhere there is the same reckless riot of power and life. Fantastic growths are here just because there is so much growing to do and so much energy back at the roots that there are not conventional forms of life enough to go around and life boils over in every conceivable absurdity of form and habit. This is no place for a niggard, but it is a splendid antidote for smallness of soul and for the dried-upness that settles down like a pall upon the spirits of men who never in their lives 
have had enough of anything or breathed an atmosphere of abundance. It must be a petrified soul that could resist this wanton abandon of vegetable life. How a man can spend three days in this full-blown exhibition of vital energy at work in the vegetable world and ever be small again is more than can be readily understood. Here is a world where no one ever need cry for more. There is too much already. After a few days of it, one longs to get out in the open, to see a barren spot somewhere just to rest the surfeited soul a bit. It's all for the asking. In fact, there is no chance to ask. It is poured out of the horn of nature's plenty, and all the color and charm and fantasy and music and laughter and glory of it are piled in wild profusion a hundred feet high, and you cannot get away if you will. Nature, at least, has a chance to show what she can really do, and it is yours for the looking. What makes up a jungle? Well, that's hard to say. There are mighty trees of cedar and mahogany and a hundred lesser breeds lifting their heads into the tropic sky. There are palms and giant ferns, of course. There are wonderful purple and magenta and crimson-topped trees whose glaring flat colors fairly shriek at you like the bedlam of a paint box let loose on the sky. Sturdy lignum vitae trees stand conscious of their high value and rare qualities. Ferns in profusion, vast, variegated, and immense, line the banks of streams and hide in the shadows of the great trees. Orchids, of course, winding streams strewn with the flowers and foliage of the dense mass overhead, entrancing water streets, and winding Venetian tunnels through forests so thick that the sun never penetrates the shadowed fastnesses below. There are parakeets, parrots, singing canaries, alligators, bananas, bamboos, singing winds, warbling bluebirds, blackbirds that can render a tune, purples and blues and crimsons and browns, all poured out and mixed together without stint. It is fascinating for a few hours, but after a time you get overloaded and are ready to cry, enough. It's great, but a little stupefying till one gets used to it. The jungle of the mountains is essentially different from and more interesting than that of the level swamps. Both are largely uninhabited, for men naturally like to have a little outlook both for their lives and about their habitations. But the growth is about equally dense, provided the soil and moisture are ripe for the production of real jungle. From Puerto Limon to Almirante is about 120 miles overland, and there was a time when practically every mile of this distance was untouched jungle. The United Fruit Company has conquered most of it until there is now but a day's journey on horseback through the connecting link between the two railroad terminal points at Estrella and the Talamanca Valley. The 100 miles of rails run almost entirely through the endless fields of bananas. But once, this was all primitive wilderness, that is, we think it was, but some of the superintendents of this clearing and planting work say that they have discovered numerous evidences that there was a time in ages past when practically all of this vast area was under some sort of cultivation. There would be a railroad now across the gap of 20 miles, but for the fact that this gap includes a mountain range with rushing rivers and steeps 
gorges, and almost impenetrable forests. Occasional travelers cross this range by the aid of sturdy mules, but there is yet nothing that could by any strain of language be called a trail. There is simply a blaze through the forest, and occasional marks where some floundering traveler has preceded the venturesome explorer through the depths of some yawning mud-hole. I crossed the range on a day when the sun was shining overhead, but only two or three times did its rays fall upon the trail. The overhead growth was so thick that there was nothing but dense shadow below. A hundred and fifty feet these immense trees rose into the air, carrying upward with them festoons of hanging vines, swinging rattan, and clinging orchids. Curious enough were some of these trees with their winding external buttresses and thin flanges thrown out to brace against the winds. Banyan trees reach out their long arms and drop their fingers down into the soil and take root and continue until the tree literally stalks its way across the mountainside. There are rubber trees and cedar trees and mahogany trees and prickly poison trees that are the terror of the natives and trees bearing all manner of jungle fruits and flowers and swarming with chattering birds and creeping things. Rattan ropes an inch in diameter and two hundred feet long trip the unwary traveler, and it is useless to try to break them. They are like steel cables. Wild birds are plentiful. Occasional baboons bark and bray, and the mountain streams splash and plunge their way through the ferns and flowers. The Estrella River forms the highway for several miles, and its rocky torrent must be forded a score of times. He who has never tried to travel this road has a new experience in store. There are hillsides that are all but perpendicular, which would not be so bad, but they are a mixture of clay and soapstone and moisture, and it is practically impossible to stand erect without holding on to nearby saplings. How a laden mule can navigate such a causeway of destruction is a mystery to be explained only by people who understand mules. And I rode a mule whose mastery of the art of trail navigation left nothing to be learned. In the ignorance of my novitiate, I alighted before the first precipitous descent to which we came. The mule, with a conservatism born of experience, took his time to make the descent and I essayed to go before and show him how to do it. He watched me with intense interest while I gingerly approached the edge of the slippery declivity and started down. As a descent, it was a complete success. At the second step, I slipped on the wet clay and went rolling and coasting to the bottom, whither I arrived in record time, plastered from head to foot with the raw material of which pottery is made. I struggled to my feet and looked up at the mule. He still regarded me intently, and I think he winked, or at least his ear did. Then he deliberately put his front feet over the edge, gathered in his hind feet, and with all fours together sat down and gracefully slid to the bottom of the hill. He arrived right side up at the bottom, munching a mouthful of grass which he seized in passing on the way down and turned to look at me with an expression that needed no interpreter. And I took the hint and stayed on his back most of the day. After a solid day of this dense growth, where we could not see more than a stone's throw at any time, 
it was with a distinct sense of relief that we caught sight of daylight at last through an opening ahead and came upon the fringes of the talamanca plantation the talamanca valley is something quite worthwhile in itself years ago it was inhabited by spanish refugees who fled back from the bloody attacks of the ravenous caribbean pirates of the sixteenth century their little plantations were not large and the land was not cleared very thoroughly but they shifted their planting places until much of the present area was covered sooner or later with platanas the view of this valley from the hillside is surpassingly beautiful thirty miles long ten miles wide and surrounded by mountains and forests the whole floor of the valley is one vast waving level field of bananas and there are few things better to look upon than a valley level full of banana tops from twenty to forty feet high they stand and their long shady corridors are like the aisles of some great series of cathedral chapels waiting for worshippers within through the middle of the valley runs the stream of the upper saxola river with its three tributaries and their bluffs the Changuanola railway which is the name under which the united fruit company moved its bananas and its men in this great plantation runs the length of the valley and the line of rails is punctuated by the white cabins of the black employees and the houses and offices of the plantation superintendents and foremen dominating the whole valley stands old pico blanco or white top there is no snow at the summit but there is nearly always a white cloud cap there hence the name this noble mountain is the interest and admiration of all dwellers in the valley its top lists eleven thousand feet above the sea it is not as high as pike's peak nor shasta but it towers well up toward the level of fujiyama and beside it mount washington looks like a pygmy and the adirondacks are mere foothills back in the canyons and forests of the mountain range live the curious talamanca indians whose tribal customs indicate a close affinity between their ancestors and those of the famous indians of quirigua the difference between the jungle and the dividend-paying plantation is one of organization capital administration and toil add these to the jungle and you have the plantation take them away from the plantation and in a very short time the jungle is again supreme crowding around the corners peeping over the edges and creeping ever onward the jungle pushes its jealous way behind the footprints of the men who essay to conquer its wild ways but once defeated the jungle becomes a slave bearing costly burdens for its master man End of chapter 5